Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries coming to you, as the announcer says, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., every Friday at this time. A great guest today, Jack Cashel, has been on uh, my show, I think, a couple times. We talked about TWA Flight 800. He was one of the uh, significant researchers in that. He was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, and that's going to be uh, a lot of the background to what we're going to discuss today because his book is, that we're going to talk about is, is about white flight. Uh, he's This is his 15th published book, and the title, and get the exact title here, is Untenable, the, St- the True Story of White Ethnic Flight. From America's city. This is a subject that isn't talked about enough, especially from the perspective uh, that Jack will be talking about it from. So, Jack Cashel, welcome to the show. Hey, Donald, thanks for having me on. It's an interesting name to have nowadays, Donald. You know, you might you might simply <laughs> yeah. be indicted for having it. You know, <laughs> you know I want I, I, uh, I when I was a kid, I guess it was briefly popular. I knew other Donalds, yeah. but uh, once, like by my kids, t- my kids were born in '89 and '94, and uh, I, there were no Donalds anywhere. By that no, time, nobody. Anyway. That, uh, that name had pretty much vanished. But there may Mr. be a Trump is Donalds now. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sure there's. A, I'm sure there are a little bunch of MAGA Donalds running around everywhere now. So, uh, it's a yeah. But you're right. It's a name that's <laughs> uh, not popular with millions of people. So, uh, how, and welcome to the show. I mean, how do you come to write? Uh, you know, again, we, most people I think I think of you as a, as a, one of the foremost researchers on the TWA Flight 800. Uh, yeah, and I had, I had done a lot of, on that. Obviously, I wrote I was pretty much a definitive book, uh, uh, TWA 800. They just released it in paperback. Regnery did, and uh, okay. I've written a couple of Obama books. You know, like Unmasking Obama, Deconstructing Obama. Yes, yes. Uh, but this is the one story closest to my heart. It's in a large part a memoir. But it's a memoir uh, with a message, and it's um, a report on the decline of America's cities, a decline that's been restarted the last several years and uh, refueled by many of the same problems that caused the, the problems in the 60s and 70s. But I had a, um, I was blessed or cursed with a ringside seat on urban decline. In fact, uh, my family, like so many families, were victims of probably the greatest social experiment in American history. And I mean, by greatest, I don't mean good greatest, but most yeah. comprehensive. And that was the, I would, you know, summarize it as the great society in all its tentacles. And it had a devastating effect on America's cities. And uh, rather than accept the responsibility for having caused it, the progressives that then launched this experiment, which was more destructive for black families than even white ones, um, chose to scapegoat the white people who fled in the face yes. of, of, its, of its consequences. And, you know, it's for those people. I, you know, I wish I'd written this in time for my parents' generation to, to read because it really vindicates their, and their, they've been stigmatized for the last 60 years under this pejorative label, white flight. They don't deserve it. And the truth about it needs to be told, not too late. Yeah, and it, it's... Um... 
it's fascinating going through it because again, I, I was born in 56. Uh, my brother was born in 48, the same year as you. So I could relate to that. Uh, uh, the television shows, the culture. And I, I, I came in on the tail end of that. So I got a little of it, but you're, uh, you, you're still you know, a baby you're, boomer, you know, so you're, yeah, you're there. Exactly, yeah. So I came in the tail of it. So, but I mean, uh, the, you really, and I, it took me a long time when I started writing about economics, like my book, Survival of the Richest, it took me a long time to realize how unusual, especially someone your age, a little bit to my age as well, because I came in at the tail end, how the baby boomers experienced uh, the greatest economy by far yeah. this country has ever had. So that that was, we look at it, we're, we're kind of maybe thinking we're trying to uh, romanticize the 1950s or whatever, but it really was the peak of American power and influence. And you described the way you grew up there and with the ethnic neighborhoods you had. So you had a lot of ethnic flavor. Italian food was being discovered. Sure. People like you and me, Irish people, and I'm happy. <laughs> we have these horrible cuisines. So, you know. We, did. <laughs> we abandoned them, uh, you know, when we could. So. Yes. Yes. No boiled cabbage and potatoes for me. Thank you. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll take uh, the Italian delights. But um but you talk about and my uh, the white flight you described, I guess, came out a little later than in Washington, D.C. My parents uh, grew up in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, their family came from a lot. They lived in Georgetown for a long time. Huh. And uh, they were part of that white flight before I was born. They yeah. moved probably they moved to the Maryland suburbs first. And that's where I was born in 1956. But right. I just heard a little they didn't talk that much about it. But I heard a little bit about how the black family moved in next door to them and uh they had a little girl that kept, you know, running over and and you know just letting herself in the house and running in our all over our house. Yeah, you know, yeah. Mom would be out, you know, hanging the clothes and, and you know again they had never experienced anything like this before, and uh, maybe they overreacted. I don't know. I don't know what else happened there, but uh, maybe it was time. You know, the suburbs were being people. I think when they talk about this, they don't talk about what the attractiveness of the suburbs or the suburbs were the really great American dream. Right. For a lot of people, uh, yeah, no, like probably your parents. People yeah. left early. They left just for reasons that were not a, had anything to do with race or fear. Or yeah. They had to do with, oh, I'd really like to have a two-car garage. I'd really like to have a nice backyard. Yeah. Because yeah. in, in my neighborhood, uh, you know, the street I lived in, just to give you a sense of this, um, we moved there in 53. But in 1950, when the last available census was done, there were 363 people on this one block, one, one block long, uh, narrow street, so you could communicate from one side of the street to the other. All the communication faced outwards. There were no back decks, patios, pools, anything like that. There were no backyards. So everyone was out on their stoops to their front porches. So you had real intense communal life. But here's the critical variable. Of those 363 people were uh, divided into 85 households. And the census at that time designated the male as the head of the household. Right. Of those 85 households, 83 had a married male head of household. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were two widows, this was five years after the war. Uh, there were immigrants from 14 different countries living on that one block. When we moved in in 53, uh, our next door neighbors, the triplex next door were three black families. So I grew up in an integrated block and for 10 years, it stayed stable, integrated, ethnic. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, a lot of the people I talked to used the word idyllic to describe it. Because it's the last time that you could live in a working class urban neighborhood and have everything you needed within easy reach. You know, all the shops were, you know, 
every kind of ethnic food you can want and you know your laundry your you know your candy store two movie theaters our our lives revolved around uh, the Catholic church and school to which I went it was a heavily Catholic neighborhood the the public school in my block was half black by the time I was there uh, but that wasn't an issue because we didn't go there and it was um, I don't know whether it was good or bad but I knew academically they were probably a year behind us, even though our classes were huge. And for 10 years or so, that neighborhood remained stable. And uh, I had a great little childhood. By 1973, yeah. the neighborhood was gone, was shot. It was yeah. unlivable. I asked a friend of mine uh, why he, he was the last guy out on the block, the last of our friends to leave. And he's also the rare Democrat. In the transition, you know, this is a heavily Democratic JFK neighborhood. Uh, in the transition, virtually everyone became Republican because they were appalled by the way the media treated yes. us. And so I asked my friend, I said, OK, Artie, you were the last guy out. You're living there with your widowed mother. Uh, what caused you to leave? And now he's kind of arguing against interest. And he says, well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, Artie, what do you mean by untenable? Mm -hmm. I grilled down. He said, well, you know, when your mother's mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home's invaded for the second time, that's untenable. You take Artie's story, you multiply it by a million in small towns and big cities across Northeast, North Central United States, even out to the West Coast. And you have the story of the true story of white ethnic flight uh, from America's cities. Yeah, and, and you're right. The, the way the way it's and it's like everything else. You know, I write about history, hidden history, and uh, the uh, the court historians and the uh, you know the, the people that are the professors, the you know the black studies professors yeah. and all these crazy. They everything is is uh, is you know, scrutinized through the microscope of today's world. Right. And so there's no there's no kind of context in that how different society was then. So something like this, it's basically, okay, what happened was that, and you describe it very well, where uh, suddenly black people started moving into these neighborhoods and it, they, it, whites panicked and left, you know, irrationally. That's but not it, what happened, though. That's, exactly. I mean, it may have happened somewhere, but, you know, mine was a neighborhood of renters and we were, uh, we all went to Catholic schools. So we had no reason to flee, you know, and so for you know, there were blacks in my grade, my, my school from the time of kindergarten. Um, it was no big deal. And it, we were on the verge and blacks were on the verge of becoming just another ethnic group, which is I, the ideal way it would have been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we didn't identify as white people, we identified as Irish or Italian right, or Jewish. Right. Um, and we were lumped together as white people later on. We began, you know, that was a an identity imposed on us by the media and the government, but it's not the way we saw ourselves. There were Puerto Ricans on the block, you know, there. It was just a mixed ethnic neighborhood. Uh, like I say, immigrants from 14 different countries. Every one of our, my childhood friends had a living relative who was born some other country. Uh, and we didn't know that we were soon to be uh, identified with Bull Connor and, you know, George Wallace, but right. that's, that's the way the media saw us. And that's why so many of my friends responded by moving to the right. Yeah, I mean, certainly. And, and that's, uh, that was, uh, I mean, I saw it as a kid in 1968. Now, uh, 
my my father still maintained his loyalty to the Democratic Party for some reason. I don't know why, because he didn't <laughs> agree with them at all. But, uh, you know, George Wallace's 1968 campaign was reflective right. of that. I think everybody else in the neighborhood, they all voted for Wallace. Yeah. Because he, even though, you know, because he 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 was the only one talking about this stuff. And, and I think everybody recognizes I was a kid, but everybody recognized the 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 way this was going. And even then, it just seems like there was not very much effective opposite because basically, as you describe it, is it with like that person that says, you know, after the second time my mother was mugged, after the second time our house was broken in, what person wouldn't want to move their family away from something like that? I, I, but how is that considered to be, uh, you're considered to be a bad person. Right. If you do that, you, you're not, you have to look at the realities of if, and that's the problem is that it's not racist to, these are personal anecdotes. Yeah, and you know, no. uh, in the book I cover the uh, an op-ed by which I was fascinating by a New York Times in the New York Times by a Princeton professor whose specialty is white flight. She had written a book that was uh, like an award winner, top prize, major award. Yeah. And in the op-ed, she talks about whether it was, and she starts out and she was a little traumatized by the 2016 election, obviously. <laughs> She starts out by wondering whether, as with the Trump election, whether white flight was the was the driven purely by racism or might it also have something to do with economics? And so she writes this uh, essay and then she concludes by saying, you know, what makes my job harder is that few of the people who fled left accounts and I'm not even sure they know why they left. Now, I mean, almost that's almost a direct quote. And when I saw that, I laughed out loud. I had already spoken to 50 people who told me exactly why they left. And so with some trepidation, I looked at the comments on the New York Times. Uh, and, uh, you know, because I was afraid they'd say, oh, you didn't go far enough in condemning these people, you know. Mm -hmm. But just the opposite. Person after person gave this account of why they left or why mm -hmm. their parents left. And it was, you know, same thing. Mother mugged. Daughter, Daughter's hair set on fire, you know, <laughs> yeah. 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 you know, grandmother mugged, a neighbor mm -hmm. shot and killed uh, one after another, one account after another. Kids get sent on school buses across town. And as yeah. more than one person said, how could you to this Princeton professor? How could you possibly write an op-ed on white flight without mentioning either schools or crime? Right, right. And uh, and she won the, the top award in her category, which made me wonder who came in second that year. <laughs> and again, that's the the entire the context is missing there because it's considered that, in, and especially with the anti-white uh, nature of the agenda now, everything is anti-white. So there's no way people, uh, white neighbors who fled when the neighborhoods were integrated with blacks, there's no way they can be looked at as having any rational reason for that. Right, that's right. They have to be evil racists that just panicked when they saw someone different from them, didn't give them a chance. And in fact, again, their houses are, I mean, in my parents' case, it may seem like a trivial thing yeah. and they were, they were early, but they had lived, I think in that house for uh, 15, 15 years or more and they had never experienced anything like a, a kid running and just, I mean, essentially breaking into their house. I mean, she was too little to do anything, but yeah. that was a huge concern because it happened multiple times. And obviously the parent couldn't control it. So uh, I don't know how many others panicked over something like that. But again, they were seeing things they hadn't seen. 
in right. 15 years in, in a neighborhood like ours, which is a working class neighborhood where people couldn't afford to leave. I mean, they couldn't afford yeah. the close in suburbs and they loved the neighborhood and they didn't, they weren't concerned about schools because the kids all went to Catholic school virtually. And, uh, but it was just a constant fear uh, of legitimate fear of crime. I mean, in Newark, for instance, the homicide rate, the homicides jumped from 24 in 1950 to 148 in 1970. This despite a decrease in population, more than sixfold increase in homicides. And, and that was being reflected in other crime statistics as well, that kind of uh, uh, magnitude of jump and you know increase. Um, but no one cared. No one dared. No one asked these people why they left. I mean, there was no articles written about how they no. end up in some dumpy suburb, sixty miles from Newark, because it's yeah. the closest thing they could afford. Yeah. Uh, not just Newark, but Camden, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Detroit, Baltimore. Yes. All these big cities, they're all undergoing the same phenomenon because the same thing was happening in all these cities. Is that the black community was breaking down under the oppressive weight of the welfare system. And the only person who talked about us, Patrick Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, yeah. uh, was finally had his report deep six because no one wanted to hear it. This was in 65. He later went on to become a Democratic senator from New York, uh, but his report was buried by the Johnson administration. And he was warning, warning about that very thing, the, the, the effect of homelessness, fatherlessness rather, on yes. black homes and subsequent black Well, homes. You, you have lots of uh, uh, really good black commentators now. My favorite is Jason Whitlock, who does the Fearless yep. podcast. He's fantastic. Well, you and, know, I knew uh, Jason from back in Kansas City, by the way. Oh, did you? Wow. Yeah. Well, he's he is my favorite now. That guy. I mean, oh, he's, that guy's, he's, he's fearless. He, he, perfect name for that. And he's he calls out because, you know, we had the stats. I don't know. I, I guess it was 1950s era. Uh, you had all there was. I don't know what the percentage was, maybe five, very, almost very few white, what we used to call illegitimate births. Right. People born with it, with it, with the parents who weren't married. Um, and, uh, but in the black case, you, you had 25% illegitimacy rate then. In 65, was, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which was much higher. But, really higher. Uh, and that's what, uh, what uh, alarmed Moynihan. That's what yeah. he wrote the report. Sure. And now it's 75%. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, how can you, 75% of people are born into homes without fathers. But again, that, they can't make anything out of that because, again, with the anti-male slant on everything. Right. They're trying to diminish the importance of the father, diminish them, so they don't matter. And, I mean, just look at the proof. Look at the, the, the black family has has broken down completely, and it's it's celebrated. It's not criticized. No, you're right. So you have Hollywood you know, sending the message that it's kind of cool to be a single mom, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but it's not kind of cool to be a single mom if you're living in a housing project on food stamps. You know? Exactly. I mean, yeah. you can survive and uh, you can survive pretty carefree because you are you know you're going to be taken care of, but you're never going to go anyplace. That's your life. That's your kid's life, right? Yeah. And the temptations to, you know, to do the go awry are really pretty tremendous. Yeah, and that's, the risk your kids run just by walking out the front door are astonishing. Yeah, and just, just look at, uh, I mean, I, I the people I feel sorry for probably most in our society are uh, people who are trying to raise their children as best they can in those ghettos. Yes. Who, who have to, who are trying to teach their kids to learn to love reading, right. to love academic, and they're in that, that incredible culture 
that is anti-education, anti-learning, and they have to worry every day. Just imagine what it's like. It's it's scary enough sending your kids out in a, in a peaceful suburb. Maybe you never know what's around the corner. Right. But in a city like that, where you don't know if they're going to be the victim of a drive-by shooting, that's and to think that this is uh, idealized or glamorized in right. Hollywood, especially with Spike Lee's and people like that. And and that's I don't understand why there is. Well, I do understand why, but I mean, obviously. That culture is what is what's responsible here. You can't ignore a crime rate. What what is the the crime rate is disproportionately it's astronomical. Well, yeah. I, I, for instance, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I live in the city. Uh, I don't know if you know Kansas how Kansas City falls, but there's a state line about a mile from my house. Mm -hmm. So you you move across the state line. It doesn't look any different, but you're in a, a different county. It's Johnson County, Kansas. Uh, I live in a nice part of Kansas City, but it's right in the middle of the city. Um, and I was in a debate on reparations a month or two ago. It was televised by a local PBS station. Mm -hmm. What was a little disorienting uh, and alarming was that they had a very hard time finding a second person to be on my side, right? <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Even though everyone uh, is, every person I've ever talked to thinks reparations is madness. Yes. Uh, no one wanted to come up and say, I'm willing to stand up here and say it's madness. Because if they work in corporate America, if they work for university, well, next time they ask you, call me. I'll stand up. Next <laughs> they finally found the second guy. He was a white guy. They didn't want to do that. They don't have two white guys. Yeah, we no. had three black uh, people on the other side. Uh, and I mentioned at one point, and I, I was in my thesis was the same as the thesis of my book, is that the breakdown of the family led to the breakdown of the community, which led to white flight, which led to racial division, etc. And it's still continuing. We haven't solved anything. It's only gotten worse. And uh, and I kept being ignored. They, they wouldn't want to listen. So finally, I said, they were saying like, oh, how, what do you, what, what's the problem with all this or something like that? I said, you know what the homicide rate differential is between Kansas City, Missouri and Johnson County right next to it? I said, it is 47 times higher, not 47% higher. It's 47 times higher. So someone said, well, what about guns? I said, you are six times more likely to be killed by something other than guns in Kansas City than you are to be killed by guns in Johnson County. Mm -hmm. And my friends in Johnson County all have plenty of guns, I can tell you. You know, <laughs> that's, that's not guns, not the issue. And But they didn't want to, I, what, they refused to hear what I was saying. I would say something, and it was as though I was speaking in a language they didn't understand. They just moved on to talk about Redliner or some other, you know, blockbusting or some other mythic, semi-mythic uh, problem. Well, and, and the problem is what you described is that they could they had a hard time getting a second person because there's yeah. so few people like you that are white people that are willing to stay. And that this is why we're in the situation we're in. Yeah. You can't have a, I mean, I, I don't want blacks or any other group treated unfairly. I want them all treated, you know, equally under the law. Sure. And but you can have a situation like I we had for at least, I don't know, at least 10 years. Let's be conservative where it's nonstop anti-white, um, you know, propaganda all the time. And they're, they're trying to, especially white guys. Yeah. Right. So, so we're talking about second class citizens. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we have no value and uh, uh, we're just nothing. We say we're mansplaining if we talk, I mean, this That's isn't, right. and it's because the white men in power allowed this. They didn't stand up and say, what the hell are you talking about? There's no such thing as mansplaining. What an idiotic concept. What are you talking about? You know, but, but they don't. Now, your point is exactly right, because when I came out of, you know, I grew up in a, like I say, a working class. My father died at 15. 
we're living in a public housing project in Newark when I when I apply to graduate school, say, for instance. And when I get out of graduate school, I have a PhD. They weren't hiring white men. Right. And I was saying, how is it the powers that be allowed this to happen? That was then. What year was what year was this? In 75. Wow. In my field, American studies. So people just, that don't think this is something recent, look at that. You're yeah. talking about uh, 40, what, 40, almost 50 years ago. I mean, I'll just give you a specific. And it was because uh, it was a career changer for me. Fortunately, I was married to a female. Now, if I had been married to a male at that time, <laughs> I'd have been doubly screwed. Yeah, yeah. Because my wife could get a job. She was a, you know, a PhD also. But I, I escorted her to a room in a New York City hotel. I'm, take the, the elevator down to the lobby. And on the elevator are, is a black guy and a white female, both job applicants like I would have been. Uh, and they were talking about their interviews. Uh, she had eight interviews lined up. He had 14. All the white males in my department combined had zero, right? By the time that elevator hit the lobby, I said to myself, I'm out of this profession. I'm not going to stick around, you know, scrambling for the crumbs. Uh, and so... I was a game-changing elevator ride, but that's the way it was. And I, and when I went home, I was living in a, in a Newark public housing project. I mean, it had nothing to do with means or anything like that. But uh, so that was the the state of affairs then. When I moved to Kansas City, because I told my wife, I said, I need a city that I could find employment in. You know, I don't want to get stuck in Champaign-Urbana or someplace. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we ended up in Kansas City. And then I began to see what, why that was so, Donald, why it was the white establishment, even then, was indifferent. Yeah. It's because their children weren't being discriminated against. Their children yeah. all had ends around, you know? Yeah. They, they had legacy appointments here and there. They all went to good prep schools, had all had good connections. They always got jobs. I'm not talking like the upper 50% of, mm -hmm. of the establishment, the upper three, four, or 5%, the percent that could make a difference. Yes. Uh, and they were as indifferent to uh, the fate of working class whites as as the uh, liberal establishment was. Yeah. And, that, and that's been the problem. I mean, I, I talked to uh, I talked about people when I entered the workforce in the uh, the mid 1970s. And, I, I, you know, even then, because I, yeah. I was a blue collar worker for a long time, even then the black workers were held to a different standard. They right. got away with stuff the rest of us couldn't get away with. This was in the mid 70s. Yeah. And I, I, I told people, you know, this is not so what, what was and I used to I used to be so mad at the white supervisors and the white managers because I used to think and, and th those are the people that built this. All they had to do is I, I didn't want them treated unfairly and and, and you know, held to where uh, they were held to, a, uh, you know, a higher standard. But the rules should have applied to everyone. The rules have never, at least in my working lifetime. The rules have never applied equally across the board. And that's the gist of the problem. And it, it goes all across the board. And just, so you get something like this where you literally ignore a, a stat that leaps out at you, a statistic like this disproportionate uh, crime rate. Yeah. That, and it just it's irrelevant to these people. So how, how do you possibly how do you think that you, you have you, you, you should want your wife or daughter or whatever subject to being assaulted? By where you live, what kind of responsible parent would possibly subject there? So, of course, you're going to go somewhere where it's safer. Right. And responsible parents, you find them in all races. So in my book, right. I tell the, in my book, Untenable, I tell the story of, uh, for instance, of uh, Whitney Houston's mother. And Whitney Houston and I were born in the same hospital. And I, of course, taught her everything she knows. <laughs> uh, unfortunate end to her life. But yeah. uh, Sissy Houston, Whitney's mom, was yeah. a classic person of her generation, about a generation 
older than I am. And, you know, her father came up in a great migration. Her parents did from the South, worked all the way through the Depression, supported eight children on his salary, right? And yeah. uh, made sure they were all in church on Sunday and went to school. Uh, and so she was very well raised, very Christian, very loving family. And they were very interested in singing. And so when Sissy was a, you know, a very uh, uh, successful backup singer on her own. Yes, yes. And uh, so in, she writes a memoir about her, about Whitney, and she's talking about living in Newark. She lived in Newark all her life. Uh, her, her husband grew up in my neighborhood. And uh, she's talking about this cozy little village she lived in, in Newark. And, and then she said, then crime and drugs began to see, seep in. And then the riots came. And I said to John, her husband, we've got to get out of here. So they do. Three years later, they move to the suburbs. That's what all responsible parents would do yes. under the circumstances if they had the means to. Right. Kanye West's mother did the same thing in Chicago. Sure. Kanye gets mugged when he's about 10 years old. They steal his bike. And his mother, Donda, writes, she goes, call it Black Flight, call it whatever. We're out of here, right? It's, it's a but, sensible thing to do. What? What? I, how is that? I don't understand how that could be criticized. <laughs> no, no. And but uh, you know, if if you are the responsible for the system that put this madness in place, you're not going to accept responsibility for it. You're going to blame white people for leaving and messing everything up. Right. Michelle Obama does, even yeah. though her family fled the, the projects where the not the projects, but the the co-op where she was living once it became crime ridden. And uh, she took her out of the school she would have gone to. It, it was a classy misdemeanor. Drove her 15 minutes south every day, her and her brother Craig, to attend a school out of district. If they had been caught, they'd had to repay the school district. But they were fleeing. They sent Craig to a Catholic high school. Uh, the mom had to take a second job to pay for it. But even though there was a good public school right down the street, but it was close to 100% black, mm -hmm. uh, they weren't going to do that. They sent... Michelle to a, a magnet school downtown over an hour away. And then Michelle has the nerve to criticize white people for doing exactly what her parents did. You know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm sort of arguing for uh, justice for my parents' generation. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Cause I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, uh, my father would have been, especially my mom was just mainly scared of black people. Like yeah. uh, she just, she was just frightened of them. Right. I don't think she really she didn't have I don't think any malicious feelings, but uh, my dad was was very much like Archie Bunker in many ways, much <laughs> more educated than him. But he had that kind of and the beliefs. And uh, I think that was for most white guys his age back then. I think that's what they thought. This was something they were they were used to. They had lived through this, not really separate equal because we, we didn't live in this. We lived in Virginia and he was in D.C., but there were still. In D.C., you had uh, Foggy Bottom, I think, was the black area back then. They had, they had, you know, you had areas where that's where. And even when I grew up in northern Virginia, we had a street that was not far from me that was the black street. Only black families lived there. I mean, I, I don't know. I just thought that was the way it was. So this was, you know, an, an era where uh, the this integration was kind of a new concept. And uh, they, and especially when the black power movement at the same time was coming out and they were frightened right. with riots and all that kind of, it wasn't all Martin Luther King and, and peaceful. No, 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 not at all. So that, yeah, because I mean, I you know, I remember my father raging about Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown <laughs> and, you know, all those ones. Like, and they were, I, you know, 
I, I didn't even understand what was going on, but I had very limited experience. So I can understand where, again, if you go back to that world, the way it was, it was peaceful. And yeah, blacks were kind of in the shadows. But you know, that's, uh, it was a little different in the North. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. why I stuck. Basically, I talked about North, Central, Northeast United States, California, even because we, we didn't live in that world. We lived in a world where blacks were part of our life. You know, mm -hmm. where they, they didn't live on a side street. They lived next door, right? Mm -hmm. They went to our schools. And they always were. My favorite team is a kid with the Brooklyn Dodgers, right? You know, it's, right, uh, right. And uh, I, I, I'm, that's not to say we we're all, you know, perfectly kumbayash, but mm -hmm. but we weren't kumbayash with each other either. You know, <laughs> Irish and Italians were, you know, my mother wasn't allowed to play with Italian kids when she was little, you know, so. Uh, and when, when my uncle married an Italian, that was a cause for some hand-wringing in the family. And I'm sure the German families that preceded the Irish families did a little hand-wringing when the Irish married them or moved in or married them. That's human nature. But we were moving through that. We were moving in the right direction when they reversed everything and, and threw us back a, a half century. It's really a shame because it didn't have to happen. Yeah. And today we're witnessing white flight 2.0 for many mm -hmm. of the same reasons. Right. But it, it, at some point, like, I mean, I, uh, I live in one of those suburbs and I, I live in one of these, uh, these uh, anachronistic neighborhoods that are, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly quiet sidewalk line. I mean, I walk through the neighborhood and I hear a pin drop. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, I really treasure it, but I know it's, you know, it's an endangered species because yeah. they, they don't like these. They don't like it. There's no excitement here. You know, so they, they, they don't they, like you having automobiles. They don't no, like no. independence. Uh, no. And they're, what they're trying to do is, you know, force everyone to live ideally to them in a city. Uh, and then in a city, you lose so much of your freedom, you so many of your rights. You're so much at the whim of, you know, corporate and government power. Uh, and uh, it's and now, but you know, you see, Donald, you see what's happening to the big woke cities now: San Francisco, L.A., Portland, oh. uh, Washington, Chicago, New York. You're hemorrhaging population. Yeah. And well, there's now, a, it's not the working class that's running. It's the laptop class, the skinny jeans crowd. Yeah. But they're the yeah. ones writing editorials, so they never dubbed themselves white flight, you know. No. They don't no, talk no. about it at all. They rather no, and, and instead, look at, I mean, in, in the case of, uh, you know, my parents' generation, uh, they they really didn't have the power to change anything. Right. But in, in the case of the, the, the skinny jeans wearing laptop crowd, <laughs> it's a good way to describe it. Uh, they... Uh, they had the ability to uh, to at least stop people from crapping in the streets. Right. They had the right. ability to do something about the tent cities. And, and I mean, you know, there's there's so many abandoned buildings in this country. If you had if you had people, statesmen who had any kind of a ability to solve problems, I'm sure they could sit down and figure out a way. We've got all these people that are on the street and we have lots of abandoned buildings. I, I think they could come up with something. <laughs> They try, but they don't even try. Instead, they pretend it's not there. In this case, the people you describe are fleeing, and, and they're fleeing not out of fear. They're fleeing because they just won't confront it, because this is this is a step beyond anything that uh, my parents saw back in the day. This is a step beyond, you know, you went to drive-by shootings, which is terrible, but now you're going into, uh, you know, literally the streets are, you know, overflowing with human waste, and you have these, these eyesores where it looks like a, worse than a third world country in, in parts of LA and San Francisco. I, 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 but they won't do anything about it. No, these are self-inflicted wounds, Donald. And 
how you mess up a city like San Francisco? <laughs> yes. Honest to God. I thought there was too much money there and too much power. You know, Gavin Newsom's from a money family, uh, as is, uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi, her husband. Yeah. Uh, they're all tied in together with the Gettys and all these people. You'd think that they would have uh, had the power to reverse this unforced decline. I, it's just, and, you know, in uh, San Francisco, like Portland, was virtually, there were very, very few black people living in those cities. And so they destroyed it through other means. Uh, and uh, But they don't want to talk about it. But cities like Nashville aren't losing people. Tampa's not losing people. You know, Dallas isn't losing people. It's the woke cities with the woke policies. And God knows they don't want to talk about those policies and, and the havoc they've wrecked. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're so sold on this. And I mean, it, but again, we're dealing with people that... Uh, that that see the overcrowded conditions there and their response is to leave the border wide open and to bring more and more desperately poor people in that aren't documented at all into these and just, you know, just bust them around everywhere or whatever. I mean, this is, if anybody thinks that can, that's impossible not to be done as with some kind of conspiratorial overtones that no, nobody can be that stupid. Our leaders cannot possibly be that dumb to think that we need more poor people crossing across the border. I mean, that's as if we don't have enough poor people here. What I mean, do you think there's a because I, I I assume there's a lot of the population in those tent cities and everything are illegals in California, I would imagine. I, I imagine they are. And I, you know, I suspect like I and this is not a novel theory to me, but that um, the um, the motive behind the porous border was to create new voters for the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, seems like, yeah. And yet now it's gotten out of control. Now they're flooding cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. The locals are noticing. Yeah. Uh, in New York State, they're trying to farm them out to the smaller cities like where I am now. And uh, and the local locals, and you take a state like New York, which seems like a blue state, but once you get more than 50 miles outside of New York City, this is Trump country. And right. uh, and they resist. They're just creating more ill will. And even the, the remaining Democrats in these counties are uh, appalled by what's happening. They don't want to have a, a migrant hotel in the middle of their little town. You know? Yeah. Again, yeah. Who, thinks of, who thinks of that? I mean, that's just, right. again, that's just insane when you have the... the uh, conditions that are out there for our own poor. But uh, you brought up a good point about the cities because uh, what was it? Uh, the last election, uh, Biden won, you know, very, a very small percentage of the counties, whatever, because those, the population is so concentrated in these really these right. big cities where the electoral votes are. And that seems to be the strategy where they can yeah. just. And curiously to digress a little bit, Biden only won half as many counties as Obama did. And yet somehow got 15 million more votes. Yeah. <laughs> Those counties really chipped in to, to get Obama, Biden over the finish line. Yeah. Now it's a, uh, you know, I, I drive a lot and I live in Kansas city. I drive New York state a couple of times a year. And, uh, you, you could drive from coast to coast and never leave a red County. Mm -hmm. So, and as I, I say in the book, uh, my book untenable, um, there is one white privilege. There's a couple of white privileges. One is that we can um, remove ourselves from thinking or talking about race. 
you know, where yes, I am sir. right now in Chautauqua County, New York, I can go weeks without seeing a black person. You know, when you talk to white other white people, you're never talking about black people, you know? No. I, black activists can't believe this is true. Yeah. But this is MAGA country. <laughs> Yeah. If a black family moved in here, they'd be welcome. They'd be gushed over. They'd be fawned over, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and but blacks aren't part of the people's lives here. You know, when I go back to Kansas City, they are. Uh, their people are talk like in whispers. Your people talk out loud. They don't have to worry who's looking over their shoulder. But uh, it's not part of their lives, and so they're not consumed by it. And in a sense, if Republicans who live in small towns and suburbs in the country as many do, had gotten more interest in this issue, they might have provided a useful countervailing force to uh, the progressives, but they haven't. The other thing that, uh, the other white privilege is this, is that this is kind of a subtle one. I would call it agency, is that when we screw up, we know it's us, you know? We don't have people whispering in our ear that the white man's at fault. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, growing up, if we messed up, with some exceptions, you know, like my elevator incident, because that was literal and true, uh, we had to take responsibility for our own failures. You know, if we weren't getting a job or if we were getting arrested or if the police were pulling us over, if we were getting busted for drugs, it was us. It was on us, right? Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, for too many black kids, are grown, grow up being told that if they get pulled over by the police, it's because they're black, right? Yes. Driving by black. Yeah. Yeah. If they get low grades in school, it's because they're being discriminated against, or the tests are rigged uh, for white. Yeah. I mean, all that nonsense. As Walter Williams once said, if a, a late black economist yeah. Yeah. Guy, said, the only people the SATs discriminate against are the people who don't know the answers. <laughs> and that's, yeah. well, that's true. so much of life. Well, I was struck by I, again. I don't, I don't watch these things, but I watched a few of the highlights because uh, I this guy Vivek Ramaswamy interests me to some Vivek, degree. Yeah, right. Vivek, yeah, and he, uh, yeah, it just if you watch that debate, he's the only again the the, the non-white guy. He's yeah. the only one that made any sense. And the other Republican that makes uh, some sense is the black Larry Elder, who wasn't allowed on the debate stage. But right. the white guys are, you know. <laughs> It's, like, it's it's really ironic to watch that because they are just and I'm struck by those and I think with, with the problem that we see in, with white flight and everything is that those the mainstream conservatives as they call them uh, so exemplified by the Nikki Haley's and Chris Christie's and the most awful yeah. people in the world but they they are uh, at least they act as if they're oblivious to the changes that people like them allowed to happen the demographic changes. Uh, the crime rates thing, they're, they're living in a dream world where the only thing that matters is, is tax cuts, especially to wealthy people or a yeah. strong defense. I, I mean, what, who is, and that's why Trump, I think was, was appealing because he seemed to be hinting at this stuff. But, you know, on issues of race, you know, Trump hasn't been, um, hey, he's never made that his issue. No, they made no. him a racist. Just yep, for that yep. it. Uh, DeSantis, I think has done good things in Florida yep. uh, in this regard. He's at least addressed it. Yep. And in fact, they're, uh, I mean, they've done, they've made strides in Florida that, that would have really surprised me. You know, they're, they take over a state university, you know, yeah. they've dr driven CRT out of the school system. Uh, but uh, you're right. I don't recall a white politician in my lifetime who was um, forthright on this issue. 
No, they they don't, and they you you can't. I said for a long time, and it goes to this issue and everything else. And I, I'm basically, you know, I came from the left. I'm still radical leftist on many things, but I but I sound like a white nationalist a lot of the time. I'm just to talk right. about race, and uh, you have to. I I'm just struck by the fact that white people are scared to talk. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, the the, the great replacement theory is is obvious. It's everywhere. If you don't see it, I don't know how people cannot understand what's going on. And uh, they are, but whites are going along with it. When you have so many whites that I see all the time who, uh, who uh, talk about white, hate whites. And, and nobody said, you do realize you're white, right? So how, right. how far does this hatred extend? Do you hate your children? Yeah. You I hate mean, your hatred is falling and, and it's, uh, it would be comical if it weren't so destructive. Yeah. Yes. Tell me about your own, Donald, tell me about your own evolution from the left. How did that happen? Well, I started out as a classical liberal. Uh, I, you know, I got my start at the JFK assassination as a teenager. I, uh, I uh, was a volunteer with Mark Lange, you know, who's Rush yeah, to Judgment, right. Uh, right. his group, and he was my idol. And uh, so that was my baby. You know, that was that's still my wheelhouse issue. And uh, that took me. But I, at the same time, I was a, I, I Mark Lane was a civil libertarian. I tried to pattern myself after that. I loved the idea. I was a card carrier member of the ACLU as a youngster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, you know, I was uh, obviously against all war and uh, legalization of drugs. I mean, you know, the prison reform against capital punishment, all the, all the leftist issues of the day. Right. But I would have recoiled at the concept of hate speech. And so yeah. we were we were against censorship at that time it was the Catholic League of Decency and right. people like that. that were trying to censor. Nobody on the, on the left was trying to censor anything. So uh, but it uh, it eventually. You know, I, I just came to realize eventually I, I discovered some things on the right, the Council of Foreign Relations and the Bilderbergers and all, all these things that I didn't know about. And uh, I started saying, well, you know, wow, there's another, there's another side to this. So I, I, I became uh, more of a populist. Yeah. And uh, that's what I am now. I'm a, I'm a populist. But I uh, and I I've only become a racial realist because uh, I don't know how people can ignore that. Like I said, I don't know how those uh, I don't know how the MAGA people or anybody else. I don't know how you can fight the corruption without addressing the racial element to it. If, if you're white, you have to instead of just being condemned all the time as racist and whiteness, yeah. you need to fight back. Yeah, you do. And the, yeah. the people who are fighting back best for us are black people now, you know. Oh, yes, by far. Jason Whitlock Jason is. Whitlock or Candace Jason, Owen or, yes. You know? Jason Woodlock is he's the the greatest white nationalist I've seen. I mean, he, he's amazing. He taught he calls out the behavior and then no whites uh, is, uh, will do. A white wolf on the screen. He's got a comment. He's made several comments. I think he lives in Kansas City now, but he says he'll never forget riding the elevated train in Philly yeah. in the late seventies. South Philly looked like the bombed out Berlin in nineteen forty five. I mean, that that happened every city. Where was there any city untouched from that? No, you know. In fact, I remember from. Uh... Once I was, uh, you know, before I, the internet emerged, I, I worked in advertising. That's where I made my money. And uh, because I just couldn't afford to be a report, an independent reporter, a citizen journalist, <laughs> the internet changed everything. Mm -hmm. But I remember in, one, in that guise, I was taking a train to uh, Philadelphia to service a client. And I'd been staying with my family in, in uh, Newark, my mother. And I took, and I had a suit on. I took the train down. And I have a briefcase, suit, you know. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to uh, a northern Philadelphia suburb. So I'd get off to the north Philadelphia station and take the suburb, take a, find a cab and, and, and take, go up to the thing rather than going to central Philadelphia. I get off at north, in the north Philadelphia station. They should never have allowed that to be a stop. 
it took a main stop on the on the uh, Amtrak, and uh, all the phones are ripped off the hooks. It's, it's total dystopian nightmare <laughs> train station. I've never seen a New York City subway station that was that bad. And I went to high school in New York City, so I saw a lot of them. And I look, I walk downstairs and said, now I, am, I may be in trouble here. This doesn't look good. All broken fences, debris, everything. Yeah. A, a black guy pulls up in a late model car. He goes, uh, you need a cab? I said, are you a cab? Yeah. <laughs> he says, I'm the closest thing to a cab you're going to see at this train station. So I oh, said, okay, yeah. let's go. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, he too is a straight guy. He turned out to be good. He was a funny guy. But that's uh, that level of uh, of uh, degradation was accepted as a norm, and no one said anything. Well, that's what I, I I'm amazed that uh, again, unless you have Jason Whitlock and uh, Candace Owens and some of these other, but there aren't many. I mean, maybe there's increasing amount, but I I just to me I, I don't know. And again, I I think that it says something about why, why would you expect neighborhoods? Why would you expect that you or your people would ruin neighborhoods? Why would you expect that there'd be broken fences and graffiti and all that? Right. Why, why, why would that be something that you, why, why should we expect that? Yeah. And why do you expect it? And no, nobody questions them. Well, why, you know, why, why that, why are the housing projects with urine and the hallways and all that stuff that, that we've, that, that we spent taxpayer money on? People need to address that. Nobody does. Instead, it's always white races. How, how are white people making you destroy your own neighborhoods? And that's why, you know, the reviews I've been getting on my book, Untenable, are excellent because they're saying, well, gosh, finally someone's telling this story. Yeah. Uh, because I not only grew up in Newark, uh, Donald, but I went back to work in Newark at the Newark Housing Authority. So I've seen everything. You know, I saw the worst. I've seen places that... You, you wouldn't, when I tell people about them, they don't believe me. Uh, at that time, however, fortunately for the book, I kept a journal. It's the only time I've ever kept a journal because the things I was seeing were so uh, beyond belief. So, and like, and these fish in these big projects, which had started off, uh, and I wanted, and in the book also, I tell the story of the one guy who grows up in the worst of the projects, Columbus Homes, and he talks about what a marvel they were when his family first moved in there, black guy. And then how and he, he explains exactly why they degraded. And he said, nuclear families moved out, welfare families moved in. It was that simple. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in these housing projects, for instance, uh, women would wear miners caps for two reasons. One is the light bulbs were always stolen or broken as soon as they were put in. And, the other, so you'd have to, the elevators were often sabotaged. Yes. So you yes. found yourself walking up a half dozen stairs in the dark, the half dozen floors rather. Uh, so the lights were necessary on your head because you're carrying kids or bags or whatever. And also the kids had a habit of dropping batteries out of the windows upstairs onto your heads. <sighs> so you, they wore helmets. <sighs> and in one project, they had to build a wall. First, they built a fence. You know, originally they had a senior area for seniors where they could come and interact with the younger generations. Mm -hmm. And they'd be out. Everyone here is black, by the way. They're out playing chess or dominoes and reading a newspaper or whatever. And the kids would interact. The next generation of kids, they started throwing stuff at them and running through the area, knocking their chest over. So they built a fence around them. But that fence wasn't good enough because they could see them. The kids could see their seniors 
And he just started throwing crap at him, right? So finally, they had to build a wall. I mean, like a six-foot-high wall, eight-foot-high wall around their senior area. Thick, you know, stucco wall. And the seniors hated it for two reasons. One is it because it blocked the sunlight. But the second thing was that it reminded them of how far their culture had fallen just in their lifetime. Well, and it's, it's I think... So much of this could be solved by uh, responsible leadership, responsible black leadership and responsible, uh, courageous leadership on the parts of whites who, who don't capitulate and apologize and make excuses. And and again, hold you. There's no other group in the world. Do you imagine that we would make excuses for, uh, I don't know, some some poor whites in a trailer park? For doing no. that kind of stuff, they, they would. No. They was never said, you know, that the culture made them do it or the, the systemic racism made it do it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Why? And, and, like you, the things you describe. I mean, what it doesn't even make any sense. Why would anybody? Why would you want to walk through the buildings where you live and destroy light bulbs? Yeah. Well, if it you're a kid, you don't care. Yeah. You know? I, and plus, you're being told that the reason this building is so degraded is because of white people. Uh, you know, it's. I mean. You're listening all day to Jesse Jackson, Farrakhan, all these people. Yes, exactly. They're pumping this hate into your head. Yes. And they're excusing everything you do. Yeah. And then when you go to the uh, uh, school and you screw up, someone comes to your rescue and says, it's not your fault. Systemic yeah. racism. And, but you're right. The key word here is courage. And uh, what we have not had on our side are courageous leaders who are willing to speak out on this issue. And- no, you know, I mean, Donald Trump could be the guy. I mean, he has a pretty good following among African-Americans. Uh, uh, and uh, but there's so much hinges on the 2024 election. No, it does. But but Trump has, has stayed away from. Uh, in fact, he just he just again, he, he changed his attorneys like, you know, changed his socks. And he uh, he just hired an attorney that I think was uh, some attorney for some big rapper or something. So, yeah. you know, he and, you know, he, he he pardoned the president of death row records and stuff like that. He I, I don't you know, he gets called a racist all the time unfairly, but he really never addressed racial politics at all, other than trying no. to control the border. Right. That's it. Right. He never he never addressed racial politics. And, you know, and he had he had friends in the entertainment industry who a lot of them abandoned him, of course. But uh, yes, well, we'll see. But yeah, Donald, uh, I keep up the good work, and I thank you for having me on the show today. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, uh, that, well, it's, it's my pleasure. You go ahead and promote anything. Uh, we have a, like five minutes left. Anything you want to promote? Anything uh, besides the book or anything else you want to? Do? And no, I, 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 I want. We had a couple questions for you here. Chris Graves wanted to ask you something about Sandy Hook. I don't know if you want to talk about it. You had written an article about it a while back. I know I stayed away from Sandy Hook. I'm sorry. You know, I, that's not. Uh, area that I know any with anything more than anyone else knows. Okay, about. and I thought uh, there was a question early on too. I didn't want to interrupt the the Sandy Hook. I know, by the way, is the Sandy Hook, New Jersey, where you know it's a beach uh, area. Oh, okay, that's good. Yes. No, I think you can talk about that one without fear. Probably, yeah, right, right. <laughs> probably discuss I, that. I'm not ducking Sandy Hook. I just don't know anything about. Oh, what well, Doug Waters wants to know: What does Jack think of Obama's gay admissions? And death of the chef. Have you heard of that? That was a really weird thing. And, and today I found out they, that the chef was actually found naked. Uh, and, right. you know, he he no. died in a, like a waterboarding thing or, or skate. Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the gay, the gay admissions I had written about I, in my 2020 mm -hmm. book, Unmasking Obama, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote about that. I, I, I quoted him from his letters. What, um, uh, just in a quick background, 
David Garrow, who's a civil rights uh, historian, Pulitzer Prize winner, leftist, uh, utterly thought uh, Obama was a failure as a president. In 2017, he writes a book called The Rising Star. And in the book, he talks about these letters he wrote to his girlfriend when he was in his early 20s, or ex-girlfriend. Uh, and it just hinted at homosexuality, something about, but the girlfriend ex took it out. And then when the paperback version came out, the letters were in there, the text of the letters. So I contacted Garrow just to confirm. I said, why is this stuff in the 20, in your paperback, but not in the, in the 2017 book? He said, because the girl finally sent, sold the letters to Emory University so she could no longer block the content. He went to Emory, got the content, and it's there where he says he makes love to men in his day, in his mind daily. Yeah. And he <laughs> helps to expand it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, of course he's gay. Uh, Larry Sinclair was telling the truth at the 2008 press conference. What happened to the yeah. battle border? Yeah. What happened to Seth Rich? I mean, there's a lot of questions <laughs> I'd like to know. What happened to Ron Brown? Well, I wrote a book about that. Yeah, I your that answer, but yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, the Obamas are developing a body count here. Not not in Clinton style, but at, yeah. not at Clinton level. But there's Amen. questions about that paddleboarding thing that need to be answered. And yeah, we're yeah. not allowed to ask, you know, so. No, again, because you're, you're racist if you ask it. It's like, you right. know, I'm sorry. That's, that was. Uh, and what is this with chefs? The, uh, the Clinton chef died under mysterious circumstances a few years ago, too. Right. So this right. is too precedential. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, who realized that being a chef was... Uh, you know, a high-profile chef was that dangerous an occupation, I guess. There's there's something skunky about that uh, Martha's Vineyard story that, you know, that if I have time or the energy, I'm going to get all around to looking at. But uh, I was you interested in what I do. Just go to my website, cashel.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. I've written the definitive books on Flight 800, the definitive book on the death of Commerce Secretary Ron Brown, which is a hell of a story. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a a book on boxing, which is, you know. When I was on a, uh, uh, I thought it was coast to coast, but Chris Gray's in the chat room. He's, he's, uh, he's, he knows more about me than I know about myself. He, <laughs> uh, he, I think it was on, I was on some other show, but a caller in, a guy called into the show and said he was Ron Brown's cousin. Huh. And he talked about how uh, the family talked about this all the time. They knew he'd been murdered. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting inside story. He found, found with a bullet hole in his head as a plane crash victim, right? Right. In fact, the, the, the only real support I got in the media when my book came out, uh, Ron Brown's Body, was from the black media. Oh, they sure. They were totally yeah. into it. Sure. Uh, and, then, and then Ron Brown, didn't he have a, uh, a, 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 a related mysterious death? There was a woman that was his associate that was found naked in a closet or something in the Congress yeah, yeah, building? Uh, that was... Uh, that was I, I believe I looked into that. That was not, I, it was not tied together. She, I think she was just at a nervous breakdown or something. Um, by the way, the woman who I'm, I have a, I'm up here for the summer in New York state. The woman who rents, rents my place in the winter is the woman who found the hole in Ron Brown's head. So. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's that's I interesting. Have, I, I, over time, I develop a lot of friends uh, who are kind of odd, you know, who have interesting claims of fame, I should say. So. That's an interesting. Well, I appreciate you being here with us. I, I, I uh, you know, uh, again, so your website, give out whatever you need to it's get out. It's casual.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. And if you're interested in Untenable, 
the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities, I recommend you go to Amazon because that's where publishers keep score today. Right. Uh, they, uh, the bookstores are unreliable and uh, Amazon is, I hate to be dependent on them, but we are. Yes. And so far, they haven't thrown me off their site yet. So That's the only place where you or, get the numbers. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're interested, go to C-SPAN's Book TV and put my name in. Uh, they just uh, put up online my, uh, it's the 12th Book TV I've done for uh, C-SPAN. That's a great service. Uh, and it's the, the one unbiased service I know, uh, C-SPAN. Well, so, you're 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 luckier than me. I've tried to get on there with a the book TV and haven't had any luck. So uh, maybe if you have a connection, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you the name. Next time we had a book, let me know, and I'll I'll give you the name of my contact there. So. Oh, please, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll email you and ask for that because I I have well my my new book. I don't think they're going to go, but I I have plenty of books. I think they'd be interested. But yeah. Jack Cashel, thanks for being here. Uh, really appreciate it, and uh, we'll have to have you on again because you're always doing something interesting. Okay, thanks a lot, Donald. Appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Take care. Okay, bye bye. Okay, bye. Chris Graves, I see Chris in the chat room. Uh, if you want to come on and have a conversation, because he's uh, that would be great. Um, Tony, can you send the the streamer link to Chris, assuming he can make it? I thought he was going to stay for two hours. That's why I didn't uh, I didn't plan for this. So I don't have any stories or not. But uh, James Marshall says America officially died with Larry McDonald was very like yeah you know he. Uh, for those who don't know, Larry McDonald is probably the only conspiracy, the only congressman we've ever had that was an open so-called conspiracy theorist. He wrote the foreword to uh, Gary Allen's cons classic and none dare call it conspiracy, which introduced a lot of us to the wider world of conspiracy, the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, all that stuff. Um, and he uh, he went down with Korean airliner flight uh, 707, I think it was, but back in... Uh, in the 80s, 86, 87, something like that. And, of course, Reagan, uh, Mr. Anti-Communist, did nothing about it when the Russians, uh, the Soviets took it down. Absolutely nothing. White Wolf says, Chris Graves is the alleged mastodon. He is. He's no alleged to it. He is. There's Cat Goya. Hi, Cat. How you doing? Douglas Grosh has been making lots of comments. He's taking truth. Trump about to go Joker mode is enough enough to think Trump cards been playing. <laughs> Uh, well, if you saw his uh, mugshot, boy, that was uh, that was pretty amazing. I, I mean, I, again, if that wasn't theatrical, I don't, I don't know uh, what it would be. But if you again, if you and I just wrote, uh, if you don't subscribe to me on Substack, please do. Donald Jeffries at Substack.com. I protest. It's called just like this show. Um, I wrote a one uh, that I just uh, wrote today. It's called uh, Yabba Dabba Magadu. And uh, it's kind of a play in the old Flintstones uh, thing, but about the MAGA people. And it was inspired by the uh, really pathetic uh, Republican debate. Just seeing what kind because, again, this is the opposition party. Supposedly, the, this is all we got. We don't have it. We don't even have third world candidate, third party candidates like uh, uh, Ralph Nader or anybody anymore that, that, you know, don't doesn't really have a chance, don't have a chance to win. We don't have those guys. Everything's now because of Trump. Democrat or Republican. And so Republicans, you know, we think of this, this is the alternative to the madness, but Ramaswamy, you know, he, he says some good things. And to his credit, he was the first candidate I have seen since JFK, uh, who, who came and been, and you see Nikki Haley was, uh, you know, was 
lit up over that, uh, his response to that. Uh, he, he basically said we had no uh, obligation to support Israel. I've never seen any presidential candidates. And again, I understand he's, uh, as I wrote in my article, I, I'm not buying into him. Um, he's a billionaire or whatever. And, you know, behind every great fortune lies a great crime. So there's probably a great crime there. I don't know. But uh, he's also openly asking, openly advocating for the end to affirmative action and, and, and other woke things. So that's incredible. Chris Graves called it the alleged white wolf. What do you think? Why is it alleged? <laughs> that's what I was wondering. What's not alleged? Doug Water says that was great. Thanks. Yeah, I'm so happy to see Jack on her. Yeah, Jack, I mean, he's not perfect, but uh, he's he's done a lot of good work. And this this book is uh, this book is very important because uh, no one talks about things like white flight. I mean, I, I talk, and you know, it's it's really because I I really am a classical liberal, so I don't fit into this mold of constantly talking about uh, race and stuff. But somebody has to. You can't have a one. And again, I, I urge you guys to, and I hope to get on it one day. If I can get a hold of this guy, Jason Whitlock, I know he would love me. We are on the same wavelength. And uh, to people like Chris, maybe, and a few others of you who've read my novel, The Unreals, uh, I created, a, uh, there were three characters in that book called the Afro Anarchists. They were doo-wop protest singers. And I had a lot of fun with them writing out a lot of, you know, really black radical lyrics and stuff. I got my radical blackout in that. But the leader was named Phosphate Jefferson, and uh, he was he was my idealized black. He was the kind of black I would be, and the kind of black person that I you know that I I, I would love to meet. And you know, again, my idealized black. I never thought that there would be anybody like that in real life. Jason Whitlock is the closest thing I've seen to Phosphate Jefferson. So if you if his fearless podcast is great, it's it's mostly all blacks. But it shows you that, uh, you know, there's not uniformity. There, there are lots of black people out there that are, are not uh, buying into this nonsense and, and know what's going on and awake. And they're, they're, most of them are really good on the show. But um, I'm trying to see here. Doug Rush says, Trump's definitely going to be president again, all in capitalism. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I don't make predictions, but uh, I said that I can see them having Trump get elected and, and from prison. I can see them making a, you know, good, a good theater out of that. Trump actually maybe with his prison mates there and claiming he's made them as bitches, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. Because of course he would never be anybody's bitch in prison. So he, I could see him doing that and say, I run the prison, you know, I've, they all, they're all my bitches if I wanted to be. I could see him doing that as far as his, uh, his Trumpenstein persona. So they may do it because I mean, <sighs> There's not too many places you can take it to further uh, devolve what's left of America. I mean, you, right now you have a president who's basically somebody who's uh, not who's not one of the brightest bulbs in a, a senior uh, nursing home, uh, who doesn't seem to know where he is half the time. Uh, it's really it's embarrassing to him and to us. So what? how could you improve on that? If you're trying to collapse everything, well, how about having a, a, a president who is actually in jail the entire time? So uh, I, I don't know. Again, I'm not making predictions. I don't know that they will do that, but that's that uh, that's something that would fit into you know the uh, the craziness that we've seen since Trump came on the scene. I don't know, Tony. If you heard me, Chris, if you're willing to come on, would love to have you. If you want to send the StreamYard link to Chris, would love to have him on there. 
help me out a little bit. He's always I, he appears to be in here instead of his show. Uh, let's see what Chris says. Uh, oh, Chris, okay, okay, let's talk about this. Yeah, um, Carolyn Katz says uh, Larry McDonald was a great. Well, he was actually a congressman, but he he was um, he was very good. And again, if you if you if you know the fact that he wrote the introduction or the foreword to none dare call it conspiracy, it tells you something. And he was a member of Congress. And he had Jack Anderson, who was just a horrible person at the time. Uh, he just to, to just inexcusably made a comment afterwards that if and it's it's sad when anybody loses their life, but if anybody in Congress had to die in that crash, they picked the right person. And that was Jack Anderson, our investigative reporter, who was Drew, Drew Pearsons, who was the previous generation's version of that establishment reporter, you know, inaccurately called muckrackers. They basically, uh, they just presented the establishment. And Anderson was one of the first to try to demonize Bobby Kennedy's having supported the plots to kill Castro, which is the exact opposite of reality. There's Randall, Randy Benson. Good to see you here, buddy. Thank you. Glad you enjoyed the show. Randy's done some uh, some nice work. Uh, he did a great film about the uh, the uh, critics of the Warren Report. So that was very cool. Let's see. Uh, TWO had a bunch of missiles hitting TWO. Chris is still looking into flight TWF flight, and I think Jack just wanted to mainly talk about uh, his new book, which I understand. White Wolf says uh, Trump's popularity is testament to the absolute stupidity of the American people. Well, that's true, but um, you got to keep in mind that uh, they're not being given anything else, really. Who else? I mean, they're 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 not being presented with anyone else. And Trump's uh, the Trumpenstein project has been brilliant in many ways. Uh, not many of us have seen through it. I mean, I'm the only one calling it that. Um, Millions of people respected reacted to the the stimuli, which is Trump, and uh, half of them hate him with a passion that they have never hated anybody, including Hitler, and half of them irrationally love him and and don't pay attention to some of his actions, which contradict what he says, and uh, just continue to believe he's going to do what he says uh, during his best statements. Uh, he's not making too many good statements now, but he's made some of the past. Certain Marshall uh, James Marshall talks about yeah after McDonald's famous interview in Crossfire yeah it wasn't long after that. White Wolf says he hasn't seen the Trump much yet. Well, it's out there everywhere. It's it's not you know it's not anything really special, but it, it certainly looks theatrical to me. Chris said he doesn't know anything. So Chris, you do you have an exceptional uh, ability to research. Chris says Peter Seacott's the best researcher. Well, you know, he's he's exceptional too. And I'm I'm really blessed to have both of you because you guys have, you know, really you, you guys have helped me out uh, more than I can take. Peter just got done um, uh, proofreading another manuscript. You know, we're gonna have uh, I'm gonna have a JFK book coming out uh probably mid-October that I uh, the co-author is William Law, William Matson Law is a uh, very underrecognized JFK assassination researcher himself. It's basically uh, 
a lot of the story of Dean Andrews Jr., the beatnik lawyer that was played by John Candy in Oliver Stone's uh, JFK. The titles Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. It's um, it's more than that, though. It's much more, you know, we we discovered in a lot of things that the, what I call the ground-level plot. And we're going to get it out there in time for the 60th anniversary, and hopefully it'll get some people looking at it and realize that uh, – the, the gist of the book is that Clay Shaw had these incredible connections that, uh, you know, we honestly, we did not know before. He really was connected to lots and lots of powerful things. He wasn't a, a benevolent uh, businessman. Harlan Stonewall says, you do a great job, Chris. Jump on with Don. There you go, Chris, come on. Uh, uh, did you, Chris, if you want to come on, I'd love to have you on. You have a lot to offer. If you're not too tired from talking on uh, all your other podcasts, you have and uh tony send him the link if you hear him in this um james marshall said trump's been on it from the start he's a swamp creature well you drape with the flag yeah but he uh and you know i've explained this i don't know how many times it's not like trump fooled me i knew what he was but uh his rhetoric was revolutionary and i talked to roger stone back in the day when he called me and loved hidden history and he he told me Trump knows about all the conspiracies. You would not believe this guy behind the scenes. He hasn't liked what he's seen. And I thought this is possible. You know, this is the, this is the only kind of outsider we can get in, under our rig system in America would be a renegade billionaire, a Ross Perot or a Chris Graves. A Chris Graves. <laughs> Ross Perot, yeah, Chris Graves is an eccentric billionaire. Um, a Ross Perot or a, uh, a Donald Trump. That's it. And I thought, you know, it's... It's not impossible that this guy made a billion or whatever, and he uh, he didn't like what he he's seen. He didn't like the way the the country's been going, and so he uh, he decided, well, I made all my money, and now I'm going to try to do something about it. I, it's not impossible. So that's the way I uh, I looked at it, and you know, I realized very early on. Obviously, he was, and I you know I turned on him pretty quickly, but. And Kat Goy says Trump killed third-party uh, momentum in 2014 when latched on to Alex Jones. People forget in the 1980s, Trump said he was going to run as a Democrat because Republicans are too stupid. Yeah, that's right. But uh, And I think you or somebody mentioned earlier what he, uh, what he did to Pat Buchanan when Pat Buchanan won the Reform Party. I mean, I remember the Reform Party. They were the hope of the world that procreated. But uh, uh, Trump tried to destroy that. He didn't, and again, Pat Buchanan's primary issue was immigration, which Trump would later latch on, right? 15 years later or whatever, suddenly it's his issue. So what, what did he not like about Pat Buchanan? And that's why Trump has always been, you know, the you're fired stuff. But again, once he decided to do this, the rebel, the rhetoric was so revolutionary. He was saying things that I'd never heard anybody but myself say, you know, cookouts, to the dismay of my family having to listen to it. But uh, it was amazing. Maui and Ukraine have been a harvest. Yeah, we can talk about that, obviously, with Hawaii. And I'd like to get Chris's uh, Chris Graves' input on that. But, uh, again, I don't know if he can make it or not. Um, White Wolf says he knows how the sausage is being made. Yeah, absolutely. Karen Carpenter, good to see you. RFK Jr. was on Jason Whitlock's show. That Trump mugs up in the stage. Yeah. Um, and Jason, Jason Whitlock, you know, He's not that far. Consider where he came from. This guy was a Washington Post sports writer. He worked for ESPN. Uh, he's a black guy, you know, and he's he's uh, he's really 
on racial issues, he's is better than anybody out there. And uh, he calls that black pathological behavior. But he's uh, he's a conspiracy guy, too. He's really good. He talks about the Federal Reserve. Uh, he had a whole show where he was saying Michelle was Obama was Big Mike. I mean, it was just, he's he's he does some radical stuff. And uh, he does like RFK Jr., like I do in some ways. Um, and he likes Vivek Ramaswamy in, in some ways as well. And but he still seems to be uh, loyal to Trump inexplicably. But then so do millions of other people. I mean, that's you know. Cat says RFK Jr. has been doing some great short videos, and he has, he is, you know, he is. But I, it, it's hard to forget some of those things I've seen with Israel, where you had the handler, the Rabbi Shmuley as the handler. I, 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 I've never seen anybody that pro-Israel. I mean, he, he went over the top. I mean, he needs to stop and not address it anymore, but I, I don't I don't really understand it. But uh, but yeah, on everything else, pretty much he's he's been right on. JLG72 says, great show. Hope you have Jack back. Well, we'll see. I mean, he's he certainly uh he can talk about so many things. Kat says Trump could compete the triad with with uh, Epstein and, and for McAfee, he could be the third suicide to join the other photos on Hillary's wall. Well, yeah, you know. Well, the most disappointing thing about Trump talking to Tucker uh, was that, uh, I don't know, Chris had mentioned this, that uh, Trump basically said he thought Epstein probably killed himself, which, come on. I mean, is that really a controversial position for you to take? To say that Epstein, Epstein's suicide at the very least looks suspicious? And you, I mean, that's all he had to say. But no, again, that's Trumpenstein. And even Tucker looks shocked and says, I think he killed himself. I mean, I think he was killed. And uh, and Trump's, well, you could be right, you know, this, you know. Uh, but so very, uh, very strange stuff. But that's what you get with Trumpenstein. Okay, I'm trying to see what other comments we have here. Keep any questions coming here. Uh, Whitewood said he saw through Trump from day on. Well, you know, you're a better man than me. And I, I you know, I, uh, it's not that I didn't see through. I was never, you know, I was always suspicious of him, but I thought, okay, again, if he, if he does anything and I voted for him because of immigration, if he did anything to stem the tide and improve the, the situation, immigration, then it would have been worth it. I, and I, frankly, I'm surprised that he did, you know, that he did nothing. Uh, it was absolutely unbelievable, but he did nothing. And uh, so, yeah, obviously, he's not going to fool me again. But uh, even if you look at Trump not doing anything, even if you look at that, and he, he didn't. But, you know, if you if you just even look at the uh, the fact that he changed the dynamic with his rhetoric alone. And he caused, I don't think there were 70 to 80 million people uh, that voted for him that were awake to any appreciable degree. Now, they again, they're not awake enough to realize he's a phony. He's an actor. But they're recognizing some things. They're recognizing Trump did, he did nothing about it, but he did talk about the senseless wars. And now you have a lot of Republicans that talk about that. You had Tucker Carlson talking about it. But so at least it puts it out there. And so what I'm thinking is if, uh, if the Republicans decide to, uh, if they, if the uh, elite decide to nominate one of these awful putrid like Nikki Haley or Chris Christie, First of all, I think the MAGA people realize there's no way they could legitimately win primaries. And again, it's a strange situation because the MAGA 
forces are by far the majority of Republican voters. I'd probably an overwhelming majority. So for the party to be presenting them with all these candidates who should repel them, they should be repulsed by them, uh, is a strange thing to do. But that's where you see it. it's the, the Republican Party without MAGA, without Trump, the Republican Party would be dead, which may be a good thing because maybe you would have had a third party movement. I don't know. But Kat touched on that. That's the main thing of the Trumpenstein project. He he killed off the third party movement. And uh, that's the um, that's the sad thing there. Okay, cool. So we had some great congressmen and senators who were potential li- lifers. And they killed most of them. Yeah, that's true. But they... Uh, she says the Trump's middle hook on is a good circuit sparker since the 1980s. The American psycho psyche. That's why he was recruited to run. He's, he's just angry. They only wanted him for 48. It's true. And he, he's, he's, he has the perfect personality for them and they are crazy. Look at that. You have Karen Carpenter saying Chris for president. I guess Chris doesn't want to come on, but that's fine. Um, I'm trying to look at, see, uh, Karen says Trump was good enough friends of the FK Jr. at least it's seen. Well, you know, maybe that's what the, uh, the whole JFK Jr. <laughs> thing in Q was built on. I, I don't really know how good Trump has said that. JFK Jr. would have been pretty much younger than him, but, you know, Trump was going after younger women. So, you know, I don't know. I guess it's possible. Um, James Marshall said it's been said that billionaires are the most controlled people of them all. One wrong step and they eliminate. Well, that, that, could be true and but uh they're also the only ones with a wherewithal that may be able to break into the system but anybody and i'm I'm, the only thing i'm hopeful for is that uh this process you already had the uh the absurd 2020 election the 2022 midterms so that these 70 80 million people know that the system is rigged at least to some degree if they see somebody like one of these awful putrid neocon rhinos winning any Republican primaries with them voting, I think maybe it'll open their eyes at the very least, maybe to discard the Republican. Cause that's the problem is you have that as long as that same hierarchy runs the Republican party, it's never going to change. That's why I said when Trump was in there, you didn't get any even phony MAGA people. I mean, there, you had a handful of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess that ran on the same kind of things that got in, but that's, it's a handful. Where are the MAGA candidates? And of course, Trump being the actor he is, was front and center with this. So in, in Pennsylvania, you had that uh, uh, really great black female candidate who was a real MAGA person and is now, by the way, running uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign. In fact, she was on Jason uh, Whitlock's last night. Very, very uh, outspoken, uh, you know, proponent of, of real MAGA values. And uh, she... Trump could have endorsed her. He didn't. Instead, he attacked her and endorses the stupid Dr. Oz. He endorses the stupid Herschel Walker. That's the idea of their opposition. These are clowns. These are not, and, and there had to be some good people out there, but the, occasion, the few occasions that they were there and they could mount a campaign, Trump always opted to promote the other candidate. And that's, you know, again, that's why people, you can't trust him. White Wolf says, once upon a time, he was a stupid Republican. Well, I did not vote for Biden. At the time Reagan came along, uh, I was a solid independent. And uh, I think I voted for LaRouche once. And uh, I only remember who I voted for. But uh, I know I voted for uh, Pat Buchanan. 
I voted for um, uh, Ron Paul, I think, when he's a libertarian. I voted for um, uh, Ralph Nader maybe twice. I don't know. And of course, I voted for Ross Perot twice. But uh, Donald Trump is the first Republican I ever voted for because uh, Ron Paul wasn't Republican. when he ran. I, I voted for Ron Paul in the primary. But uh, I don't think he was really a Republican. I, I, that's the first Republican I ever voted for. And I haven't voted for a Democrat since my first vote, you know, as a teenager, was cast for Jimmy Carter because I was a Democrat then. I didn't like him, but uh, I wasn't going to vote for Gerald Ford as the, uh, you know, former Warren Commission, Warren Commission member. So uh, I voted mostly independents. And yeah, it's like, and, and Trump was the only, I said, you know, when I voted for Trump in 2016, that was only the, my second winner. You know, Carter was the first and say every other candidate I voted for a loss, always. Uh, let's see what we have here. Take the mud shots first, then go on to court QAnon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Trump, Trump is, again, and we talked about, uh, Karen says that groveling to Israel is tough to stomach. I agree. If you watch, especially the one in New York where uh, it was, you had this, uh, this woman that was uh, with some kind of Jews for peace in Israel or something, Jews for Middle East peace or something. And she was talking about the death of this Palestinian journalist who was an American citizen. She was shot and killed by an Israeli soldier. And so a bunch of these groups, they're trying to get uh, him extradited to America. Hey, they do Adolf Eichmann back in the day. Uh, because he killed an American citizen, and and Bobby, he 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 first of all, Rabbi Shmuley, he was a fair, he was apparently a former uh, reality TV star or something as well. He jumped, he wouldn't let him talk, and he just kept talking for him, and you know, basically anti-Semitism and all this nonsense. And then Bobby gave a really weak answer, a really that I don't really know enough, and it was it was very very unsatisfying. Jordan says, yes, it was the Soviets that shot down KL-007 with Larry. And, and you had the supposedly greatest anti-communist president in office ever at the time, and he did nothing. I don't know what he should have done. I wouldn't have created World War III over it, but he did nothing. And um, and that's he barely mentioned it. He's kind of like Lyndon Johnson when, the, uh, when Israel attacked the USS Liberty. Same kind of thing. Okay. Um, and Trump did, and that's what Karen says. You know, he talked a good game, and that's what, you know, <laughs> that's what attracted so many people. He he really, really, uh, and not that he's that articulate. Obviously, he talks, he has that ridiculous style that drives you crazy where he repeats the same thing. But he was saying things that only, I had only heard myself say. He, he called out the fake unemployment rate. And of course, as soon as he got in office, he was bragging about the same fake rate. And uh, he he and he said he still said that line I use all the time. So I think it's it's one of the uh, most astute observations about our system. And that was that the system is it's a rigged system, and you don't trust those who rigged it to fix it. And that's the problem with the Republican Party right now. They still have uh, everybody in there. If you trust the MAGA people to any degree, you would have to start seeing them as head of. Uh, uh, parties and, and state parties and things like that, you don't see it anywhere. So you're not going to get MAGA candidates. Again, I, they're not perfect, but if you had if you had everybody in the house was like Matt Gates and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few others, again, they're not great, but they're a million times better 
than the people that are running things. You might actually get something done on immigration and, and a few things like that. T. Jordan says, uh, Hill Boggs and Nick Begich were also killed. Absolutely. And uh, I talk about that a lot. I, you know, I think I met him in the first one to bring up in history. I talked about how uh, the young guy that drove Hill Boggs to his flight to oblivion was a young aspiring politician, Bill Clinton. So even there, you know, you can kind of loosely connect that to his uh, you know, huge body count. But uh, yeah, it was, um, and Nick Beckage was uh, his, his son is on Alex Jones quite a bit. And he's one of these foremost people who uh, claimed harp and that we have geoengineered weather, which we do, obviously. White Wolf says Epstein's sitting in a jacuzzi with bin Laden and Henry Kissinger. Well, Henry Kissinger's still alive. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's still sitting in the jacuzzi. Somehow, at age 100, the first obese 100-year-old ever. Kat says, Pat Buchanan was a great guy. He still is, but he was at the end of the St. Louis Globe Democrat for quite a while. He was quite a St. Louis fixture and his sister, his sister Bay. Uh, Pat Buchanan, I emailed him uh, probably uh, a couple months ago, maybe. Because I wanted to get, I, you know, I love the guy. I wanted to get him on the show and I hadn't seen him on TV before. And he answered me right away. Uh, and that's just the kind of person he is. He was very polite, but he said, well, I've retired from doing interviews. And he said, if I did, made an exception for you, I'd have lots of old friends that would be angry at me. So it was, but I was really impressed by the fact that, you know, I can't get some of these ridiculous YouTubers nobody's ever heard of that have, you know, 500,000 subscribers and I can't get them to answer me but I can get Pat Buchanan to answer me right away. So, uh, you know, you answer who you want. T. Jordan says, who believes Pat JFK Jr. flew his plane? Well, T., uh, I hope you uh, read my work on it uh, with all with all humbleness. Uh, I was the first one to conduct a, a real independent investigation in the death of GFK, JFK Jr. It was an assassination. He didn't fake his death. Uh, he was murdered. And uh, I suggest you read my book, Hidden History. And the new book I have coming out, and Chris Graves helped a lot with that research, uh, is uh, going to be called The American Memory Hole, How the Court Historians uh, Create dis Promote Disinformation. That'll be coming out probably next fall, I mean, next spring. And uh, I'll have a, a lot more on the JFK Jr. case, a lot more about a lot of things, but uh, there's a lot more about JFK Jr. in there. So I absolutely was uh, murdered. Um, Harlan says he did more damage in a few years in the country than the right. Well, I don't know if he did. You think? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, I think he, again, you could say that in a way, but he also, again, I think, and again, I, he's an actor, but I think maybe an unintended consequence of the Trump and project was that um, a lot of people were awakened by his rhetoric. Now, they haven't, too many of them still aren't seeing through it, but I don't know if they intended that or not. I'm not sure. But um, I'm looking for a thing here. Okay, they're, they're talking about where they live. Okay. And Kat, I just said who drove was young Billy Clinton. I just mentioned that, uh, who drove Hill Box to the airport. Let's see here. Karen Harper says, Getz knows what's going on. A Solomon, Tim Caston was surprised. Well, he's, uh, you know, he's, and he, they, they tried to, uh, to set him up and smear him with an underage thing. And they know now that the, uh, he has proof supposedly that they, uh, somebody was trying to, uh, 
was, was trying to bribe him. And they know that, but it's still, they still, you know, they still trot that out there because again, these guys are not perfect, but Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Thomas Massey, these are probably Louis Gomer. These are probably the best that you have. That may not be much, but that's the best you got. Uh, John Baskelin says uh, Flight 007 was not just Soviet airspace. It was over Soviet territory. Completely different situation than the deliberate false flag attack by Israeli Defense Force of the USS Liberty. And as we know, that was uh, that was covered up. T. Jordan says, thanks. Yeah, please, because I, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, nobody talks about JFK Jr. that much, but uh, when they should, they, they really should mention me because mine was the first research and uh, Chris Gray has helped, especially with the new research that I have in the, in the American Memory Hall. And uh, we discovered some incredible stuff. It's, it's a huge story. I mean, I, I basically uh, behind the scenes, JFK Jr., I talked to uh, his high school girlfriend and uh, also an adult member of his inner circle who strongly requested to remain anonymous and uh, learned that he, behind the scenes, he had an obsession to find out who killed his father. He was reading the same books I was. He was reading, you know, the, the, the conspiracy books. And uh, if I had written mine back then, he might have read mine. And um, so he was, you know, interested in it, but he he kept it private. I think it was a source of conflict, especially with his sister, Caroline, who has uh, not been a profile in courage on this kind of issue. And the rest of his family, you see with Bobby Kennedy Jr. now, you know, belatedly getting into this. I, I don't know. That's why if I ever met RFK Jr., I would try to to show him the evidence about his cousin. And uh, if he knows that, but he has hidden history. I know that. I know he has hidden history at least. I don't know if he has any of my other books because he, his primary publisher is my primary publisher, Skyhorse. And Skyhorse sends, uh, sends books to uh, people like him and Oliver Stone and Jesse Ventura uh, and Roger Stone and, and uh, well, not, maybe not Woody Allen. They publish Woody Allen too, but they, they send uh, books to the biggest names that maybe try to get a blurb or something. And uh, so he, whether, I mean, I can't believe he didn't at least look through hidden history considering it's about so much about his family, but um, we have lots of uh, common friends, including Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who, uh, who's, you know, I would love to uh, be able to hook up with RFK Jr. through her. But at this point, I don't know, because they did an interview with him now. It'd be hard for me. And I know people would probably say uh, that I'm, I'm a sellout if I, uh, if I didn't mention um, the Israel thing. I, I don't know how I can not mention that issue. I mean, I probably could, you know, because I have great respect for him otherwise. So maybe, I, you know, and I don't like to be confrontational. I mean, I'm not being paid. You know, if I was on uh, AM or FM radio, and I was being paid a lot, then I would probably get confrontational when it was necessary in interviews. But although I don't like it, I've never liked it, but um, I think there's a way uh, to do it politely. And what else we have here? Harlan says he didn't look like we can cover. Well, it's, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that uh, we can't recover from Trump. Trump, Trump, the Trumpenstein project did destroy any notion of a third party candidacy. Uh, it was designed to tap into the populism that's out there, along with what Bernie Sanders are doing, and uh, twisted into partisan purposes so that you had. The Bernie populists just stood firm in the Democratic Party and are, you know, supporting odious, you know, cretins like uh, Joe Biden. 
uh, and in the uh, Republican Party, it was to get them to stand behind Trump regardless. No matter what Trump did, I mean, he's he's promoting the vaccine, he's bragging about creating it, and even though they know it's a disaster, they're still supporting him because they don't see anybody else, and maybe there is anybody else. I mean, I said at the time he was our last hope, and I, I think he really is. Um, Sam Bodistree said, JFK Jr. loves him, the small hats, coward to nuts. Oh, no, you're talking about, I think you mean RFK Jr., Yes, he's, uh, um, yeah, okay, he says it now, yeah. Sam Bodistree, I guess he's still, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or not, saying Trump is, he supports Trump. I don't know. Okay, that was RFK, I'm seeing if it. Survival, and, and I thought I would, at this point it is, Um more important than voting probably is uh, getting prepared. I mean, I I have a backup generator. Uh, I have lots of water. Um, we have a, a pretty good supply of food. I, I would suggest everybody doing that because uh, and everybody talks about guns. I, I don't know how important guns are at this point because uh, as long as there's some semblance of water, maybe when there's no water, but uh, we've already seen that if, if there is uh, some semblance of water that uh, – they're going to come after people who use guns to try to protect themselves in their home. And so uh, I, I think that Tim um, Bodhi said it was written in the stars. Well, you know, I, I, maybe my prediction will come through and he will win uh, from prison. But uh, I think that's the only way we do it. And if you're, if you're over in Rockfin, I'm sorry, I don't get the, the Rockfin link anymore. I don't know why. Tony, maybe you can tell me why I don't, but I don't get the, and I used to be able to click on that go to, I don't get it anymore. So uh, I can't figure out how to access the Rockfin chat anymore. So if you're over there, uh, the, the the regulars that were over there, come on over to YouTube uh, where I can see you. I can put your comments up on screen. Um, I'm not meaning to ignore you, but I don't, uh, I can't figure out how to access, you know, I'm not, I'm not that sophisticated at this stuff, but um, so basically, that the, the uh, I guess the they're uh, putting the Hawaii thing. You know, we need to talk about that a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I haven't. And again, I'd love to. That's why I'd love to get Chris Gray's thoughts on it. I'm sure he, uh, you know, has studied this intensely. But uh, what I've heard, and again, I don't know how much is is true. But I've heard that the police uh, blocked the uh, people trying to evacuate. I mean that. That makes no sense. There is no innocent explanation for that. There's none. There, you cannot possibly uh, have an innocent explanation for that. Uh, White Wolf says, I have no hope. Maryland, well, I'm not in Maryland, actually, White Wolf. I'm in Virginia, so maybe I have a little hope. I'm in Northern Virginia, but I am right there. I'm <laughs> right next to D.C. Uh, the metropolitan area, as they call it. But... Um, and then you have this character, the mayor or the governor, I don't know what the hell he is, of, of Hawaii, who is uh, making all these ridiculous comments about uh, trying to grab the land and people not getting their money's worth for it and uh, joking inappropriately about it. And and, and then, then you had this guy who, again, this is why Chris would be wonderful because he knows so much about Las Vegas, but 
the police chief there is apparently the guy that was the police chief in Las Vegas during that suspicious, you know, event. And suddenly he makes his way to Hawaii. And he's supposedly the coroner, too. How can you be most the police chief in the coroner? I don't know how much of this is true. But if it's true, it makes no sense. And I saw a video where this police chief put a reporter in a headlock who was asking about how many children died. I mean, these, these are things, I mean, you, you have to watch some of these videos to realize where, you know, where we've gone. And that's the next hand, Buddy Street said, where are the children? 603,000 have contacted. That's what I'm talking about there. And that's why I think that's what the reporter was saying. How many, and he puts them in a headlock over it. We have reports that, uh, that they were, uh, they were forcing people to stay in their cars. I mean, and you have all the families that were burned, found dead together. I mean, it, it just looks like, and, and then the things that they didn't have, uh, they didn't have proper supplies to, to deal with it or something. Just all the stuff that I complain about all the time in America 2.0. Just a, just a mismatch of incompetence and corruption everywhere where they can't deal with anything, let alone a disaster like this. But however you look at it, and then, of course, you have the, whether it was CGI or not, the laser beams coming out, I don't know. But that's the same kind of stuff that we talk about in, in, in uh, California. Karen says she was all other too. Some shady stuff going. No, that and I, I don't know. You know how it's hard to tell. You know from here how much is because we have no press other than us, the alternative media. White says I need a bug out location. Well, you know, again, I think it's I I, I don't I. Uh, I have trust again. Again, I I I don't know how, if it will get to the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome situation. I don't know. Christina Aiden, good to see you here. I don't recognize your name. She lives on a spring-fed lake and she still has water. Yeah, that's good. Hopes they don't they poison. I hope not too, but uh, certainly don't trust them to do anything. Douglas Grosh says billions to Israel and Ukrainian Jewish billionaires. Seven hundred seven dollars a wine sentence. Absolutely, but again, this is. Uh, even before Hawaii, you know, we knew they were giving this kind of money. I mean, look at uh, one of the <laughs> the most ridiculous uh, of these uh, absurd, stupid party uh, rhino candidates, uh, Mike Pence. We had anybody would vote for this guy. And when Tucker questioned about Ukrainian aid, he says, "That's not my concern." You're, you're, he said he wasn't as concerned about you know what was going on in America with the cities crumbling and and people suffering here. Wow. Christina says she's reluctantly here. I prefer. Well, I I don't I don't want to force anybody to come. I'm just saying I can't figure. And I've got to talk to uh, Billy and Tony about being able to get me back on the. I mean, I I know it's a way. I just forget how to sign in, and um, but I used to automatically get the link, and then I would just click on the link. Let me see. Uh, nope, I didn't get it today again either. I get the YouTube link, but um, and it's just because we get so many. Uh, commentators in YouTube, it's easier to keep up here and I can put them on screen and so forth. Hakoida says there are thousands of, of kids missing in the Ukraine and women. It's been a gravy train. Supposedly pure Hawaiians are among the least, the most valued of all traffic. I didn't know that. Well, I, who knows what the, what's trapped, what's uh, valued in trafficking. Uh, White Wolf says the DC area will definitely go to Mad Max long before most of it. Well, probably could be. I don't know. Karen says new school shut down in Texas due to COVID, according to Alex. And, you know, that's, and that's the, uh, I talk a little bit about masking the truth, you know, uh, 
I had a distressing uh, conversation with a guest host on Coast to Coast this week because uh, I've been trying to get on there to have Masking the Truth, you know, my book. Discuss because every other, I mean, I've been on there probably a dozen times. All my other books I've, I've been on discuss and it, it really triggers sales. I mean, you know, it really puts in, and that's, that's what really helped Hidden History. It got on there really early. I had a double whammy back in Hidden History first came out. I was on back-to-back -back Infowars and uh, Coast to Coast. And man, it, did, it, it never looked back. I'm convinced that's why it was so successful. But, uh, and I know people would love this story, but because no one else is, is talking about this, but um, they're afraid of it. And he told me, he says, yeah, I really wanted to have you on, but George Norrie had a meeting this week with all the guest hosts and he told them no more COVID stories. Really? So, but maybe they'll relent if they, if they do the, the lockdown again and all this nonsense comes back and there's more opposition. I, I hope they realize that then my book will be more timely than ever at that point. Um, Karen says she has lots of trouble with Rockfin. That's why she's here. Oh, Chris is in the middle of his last Mad episode. Okay, a tribute to the, that's right. I read you were doing that. Back to the Future. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, Chris. I forgot you. Uh, well, you were in the you were in my chat room, so I was thinking. I don't know. You were available, but he uh, and I'm a big fan of the Back to the Future, especially the first one as well. And as I explained, it's because uh, back in the day, uh, when Family Ties was on, and then Back to the Future, everybody that's who I got all the time. Everybody said that I look like Michael J. Fox, so. Uh, Obviously, I had an interest in him. You know, somebody tells you you look like somebody, then you're going to probably uh, become a fan. So I liked him. He had a little bit of my personality, too, back then. And so I liked And I, it's certainly uh, sad to see what's happened to Michael J. Fox with the Parkinson's and everything. And uh, good little actor. Good-looking fella, too, I must say. But um, what was I saying? But... Um, so after Coast to Coast Tell Me, and, and combined with uh, everything else now, the, the libraries, maybe they'll start to fall, and I appreciate everybody doing it today. I found out Baltimore County is adding it, I'm asking the truth. And before that, the only library I know of was Washington County, Oregon. But, you know, people have tried to get it in lots of uh, libraries. My publicist has, and uh, they have put up a united front against it. So please try to break the algorithm suggest there because that's how we can get it out there really get it in the libraries because this is a book controversial enough and it's talking about stuff that others aren't talking about that it could spread by word of mouth and it's still the Amazon ranking is still pretty decent considering I I, I was not on coast to coast usually I, I relied on that to get it jump started and so I'm, I'm and, and it also because I told so many people to buy it through Lulu so it's not even the primary place I don't think where they're buying it so it's very uh you know, we're, we're, I, I'm not displeased with it, but it's when they put up all these impediments to it, when they, uh, when they block it from Google books or they, they block it from a world cat search and world, you can't even find the copy of the library of Congress. So things they haven't done to anything else. They, uh, if you go to like, um, my author's page on Amazon, uh, they don't include that book. It's not, I mean, it's there, but if they don't include that book, um, on Apple books, they have the ebook listed for $999, just games like that. They're shadow banning it like they did my other books. So um, Sam Bodhi's tree, I imagine it's quite frustrating. It is. And it's it's because uh again, it's part of it's part of like the shadow ban with anything else. I mean, I have a big enough following on uh 
Facebook now, and I should on Twitter, but they didn't keep taking followers away from me, uh, that I could get a lot of, I could get a lot more word out. I mean, my Substack is growing and, and uh, I really appreciate the people there. I, I'm getting more paid subscribers and I certainly appreciate them. Although everything I offer there is free. But, um, you know, so if you want to support me first, become a subscriber at substack.donaldjeffries.substack.com. I protest is the name of it, just like this show. But um, that's the only place I can promote anything reliably. I, I, you know, today on Facebook, even today, I was hearing from people that, you know, I always go on there on Mondays and say, it's Monday again, so I'll be back on Jeff Rents tonight at 9 p.m. I get people again today, Friday, saying, I just saw this now. So they, what they do is they delay something when I promote it so that, uh, you know, say I was having a book signing or something, people wouldn't know. And uh, again, that's shadow banning. And, and um, Twitter, it's the same thing. I'll hear, you know, I never saw this or I saw this later. And, uh, or, you know, somebody will tell me I've had to follow you eight times because they keep unfollowing me, that kind of stuff. So that's shadow ban. And uh, it's, it's, it's what I'm seeing with, uh, with masking the truth, because it's, again, it's the only one that starts the only thing that starts to point in and something like the dancing nurses now, they're going to be more relevant than ever because they're back in the news. They're dancing for climate change now. They're not dancing for 9-11 truth. They're not dancing for JFK assassination truth. They're dancing for climate change. So amazing. And I guess next they'll dance for transgender story hour or something. So, And uh, as I pointed out, the dancing nurses, the empty hospitals are a big tell. They are part of this story. They're part of this phony psyop. Um, in fact, they reveal it a lot more than some of the other stuff does, because uh, I worked in a hospital for years and under no circumstances would they ever allow some kind of choreographed production like that with the nursing staff. To, first of all, where would it take place? You don't have like a, a you know, a, an auditorium there. Uh, where, where was this going on? But uh, nobody questions it. And uh, maybe they will now. Cat says, have a safe week. And that is a week away, but you too. Let's see. I don't know. Chris Gray's. Chris and White Wolf are going back and forth. But uh, Chris is the uh, is one, was, is one of the great researchers. Like I said, I'm very, very blessed to have him along with Peter Sikosh, two, two really great researchers. And uh, they've helped me out a lot because it's uh, it's not easy now anymore. You know, since I wrote the original hit, I mean, I did all the research, pretty much almost all of it on my own in the first few books. And uh, but it was easier then. It was much easier because they hadn't started. Uh, they hadn't, uh, you know, rigged the algorithms on Google on the other search engines yet. And uh, so. Back then, if I wanted something, I, uh, I just typed in whatever I wanted and, and it would lead me to a mainstream source. It's um, that's not possible now, and uh, it's only through the efforts of Chris and Peter that I get a lot of this information. Um, Kat says I need to do a really hard-hitting segment by segment interview about your book to to, to hook people, and too many people are sick and tired of even the word mass. They need to get hooked by it. yeah, and it's it's uh, well, I've I've done lots of interviews, but the problem is that that, and I'm grateful for the. Uh, the platforms that have me, but the biggest platform should be interested. Infowars should be interested. Uh, Jimmy Dore should be interested. And uh, you just, I just can't get a hold of them. And that's the, uh, 
that's one of the problems. They're as, as disinterested as the libraries are. Harlan Stonewall says, good night, good show. He's going to catch the rest of the Back to the Future show. Okay, please do. Go over to Chris Gray. Check him out. He's probably doing a better job than me anyhow. Um, James Marshall said, that's why Jones gets sued in oblivion. He is, he is well, they, well, the the narrative isn't real. Jones is real, but he, uh, he for whatever he is, whether he's disinfo or not, he's symbolically representing all of us, just like Trump does. And the message is that the state can do this now. We can bring you to trial for questioning Sandy Hook or any other event and charge you with harassment. As if, just you know, nonsense. It, it, again, it, it eats away at free speech, but, uh, you know, we barely have any free speech uh, at this point. LB says, did you say you're going to be on rents again tonight? No, no, no. I was talking about Monday's tweet. I just got, no, LB, I, I'm out I, every Monday. No, not tonight. And tonight, I believe John Barber's on. So, uh, you know, you, you don't want to miss that. That's the, uh, that's as, uh, as good as it gets, John, because John um, rents his, rents gives me a regular platform and he gives John Barber and he has for years when nobody else was giving Jeff, uh, John Barber a platform. He was so, uh, very, uh, very good stuff. And, uh, so, um, I just got a text here. Deborah Willis says, thank you. Another great show. Thank, well, thanks to everybody that's listening. I appreciate it. And uh, probably may end a little early here because uh, Tony says we're the customer. But uh, I'm running out of things to talk about here. But I, I, I just would, please, if you can, if you want to support me uh, without any money, subscribe to me on Substack and uh, suggest my, my book, Masking the Truth. All my books, really, but Masking the Truth especially. Suggest it to your public library. Suggest it to your um, uh, college library of your alma mater if you went to college. And um, thank you, Smoke. Good to see you here. Smoke's a great supporter over on uh, Substack, as many as of you are. And uh, again, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. it. You know, whenever I feel like I don't... I'm not getting through to anybody. I get such, I get nice notes from people. I, I get a lot of them and, uh, you know, people emailing me, uh, messaging me, sometimes even snail mail that uh, tell me about how much they love my work or how much they love listening to my show. So I really, really appreciate it that I can't tell you uh, how much that means to me. So if you can ask you to do something else again, just uh, try to, and also, you know, if you can try to review it on Am review. Masking the Truth on Amazon, people have told me they never put the reviews up, but some have. Again, you just got to break through the algorithm. So if you can do that or at least rate it, because again, as Jack Cash was saying, it's a numbers game. That's why I stress Amazon. I'm no fan of Amazon, but that's where publishers look. That's where readers look. And they see those numbers at the top and they're followers. And uh, if you... Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, so if you like hidden history, you see that's six, over 600 ratings and reviews. People look at that and they say, well, I'm interested in that. Where they'll look at, uh, you know, on Bard Famous 36. So they, they will probably bypass that. So it's a numbers game. So uh, the more numbers we can get on Masking the Truth, the better, because it's an important book. People need to read it. People need to uh, realize what's going on. But at any rate, so I thank you. It looks like uh, the, the people going out of the chat room. I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks to Jack Cashel. Thanks to everybody for being here. 
I'm going to close a few minutes early. Uh, again, keep uh, keep on seeking out truth. And uh, if you can, again, if you can help with libraries and so forth, anything you can do to help Masking the Truth get out there. It, I'm calling it the most censored, the most shadow banned book in the in the world. And I think that's a pretty appropriate description of it right now. But again, I thank you very much for listening to I Protest, and we'll talk to you next week, same time. Take care.